This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the niche details of modern warfare and underreported conflict with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to independent journalist Jared Olson. He's going to talk to us about his time reporting in Honduras, specifically about the narco paramilitaries there that have a grip on the poorest people in the country. It's a very bad situation. Jared's going to explain more. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popularfront. Remember, we don't take money from corporate investment funds or any governments. So the way we stay afloat is the Patreon. So you've been doing a lot of work uh, in Honduras. Obviously, the situation there has been volatile for quite a while, but it's like a very underreported um, situation around there right now. Maybe, maybe just explain to us what it is you're doing uh, in, in Honduras. Why are you reporting that? Yeah, so I'm an independent journalist who's been uh, reporting in Honduras for about two years now, um, really consistently for like nine months, right? And the context that people need to understand about Honduras, I would say there's two things, really. One is that Honduras has been in a constant state of crisis since a 2009 military coup that was quickly legitimated by the United States. It wasn't orchestrated by the United States. It was orchestrated by the Honduran military and oligarchy in June 2009 that basically turned the country into what is now referred to as a narco dictatorship. Um, The government, the ruling party is controlled by drug traffickers. Um, Extrajudicial killings abound. Um, It's one of the most corrupt countries in Central America. and because of that, uh, what Hondurans refer to as a narco dictadura, narco dictatorship, uh, the total combination of drug traffickers in the government, there's no difference in Honduras. Uh, Honduras is ground zero for undocumented migration to the U.S. Um, one out of every five uh, people apprehended by Border Patrol uh, this year thus far, and fuck Border Patrol, um, is Honduran, right? And that's because the conditions are so violent, so despairing in the country. Uh, there's a sense of utter despair that has grown out of that social context. Um, and meanwhile, you have this government that, you know, to try to maintain its projects has begun creating not only elite military units, which is openly known, but this underreported issue, those same military units are creating paramilitary units that are killing people actively. Right, and before we go into the paramilitary side of it, which I'm particularly interested in, why is it that the Americans went, yeah, sure, we're going to completely legitimise this military coup? Because obviously there are, they've obviously had a hand in a lot of military coups throughout history, we know that. But generally there are some military coups that they go, no, bad, but this one they've gone, yeah, good, that's fine. Why is that? I think what it was is that... First of all, I mean, I, th- I don't think you can overlook the fact that Honduras has traditionally been like a base of U.S. power in the region, right? Like mm-hmm. ever since the 1980s, um, there's a couple of massive U.S. military bases in Honduras. Um, and they really just, their main goal here, aside from maintaining geopolitical control and also facilitating an environment for transnational capitalism, which we know the U.S. likes, um, they just want stability, right? So I think that honestly, they looked at this coup and they said, uh, we don't care. We, 
they basically had a slap on the wrist of the people who orchestrated the coup. So very briefly, they cut off aid. Uh, the IMF, the World Bank cut off aid. And the U.S. said, we denounce this and promote a return to democracy. And then within six months, they were back pumping uh, funds to the new post-coup government. Um, and they had diplomatically recognized them, even as that post-coup government was already in 2009, 2010, engaging in mass human rights violations, torture, extrajudicial killings, and as people were starting to flee the country more. And one thing to add is that, so again, like this is something that I think tankies especially get wrong. Um, they say it's like a CIA orchestrated coup and stuff like that. It's not. It was 99% done by the Honduran military. And that's a whole other context into why they did that. A president, um, I interviewed him once, Manuel Zelaya, was a liberal president, not even a leftist or progressive, but a liberal president who had raised the minimum wage and decided to join ALBA, the Venezuelan-led oil alliance, Venezuelan-Brazilian-led oil alliance. They decided to get rid of him for those reasons, right? So that being said, uh, people say like it was mostly done by the Hondurans, but there is evidence to suggest that there were officials in the State Department who knew about the coup beforehand and greenlighted it. And they said, go ahead, you can do it. And then after the fact, they gave him a slap on the wrist, said, we support democracy, denounce this. But then once people forgot, they went back to supporting them. Um, so that's how you have what's going on now. Right. So it's like the US didn't orchestrate it, but they just went, yeah, nice one, go ahead. We've got no problem with it. Basically, yeah. Um, and as soon as, because Honduras is small, unfortunately, um, like so many places in the world, right? And as soon as kind of critical media attention drifted away, I think they were very smart about it. They just kind of quietly resumed aid. Uh, world Bank, the IMF, um, began supporting projects again in Honduras. Um, the Pentagon started collaborating again. I mean, they never really stopped collaborating with Honduran military forces, but all this sort of aid, military and financial, resumed very quietly and very quickly. And I think they knew what they were doing, you know? Right. So who was the kind of coup leader and what's the position of the, obviously it was a military um, coup. How is it? How, how is it then that they just went right now with the government? Like, how did that? How did that transition? What What came from that? Yeah. So basically, there was no single coup leader. Although, arguably, one you know, some people in Honduras would say that the guy pulling the strings all along is the current de facto dictator who yeah. uh, might get voted out. Uh, was supposed to leave this Sunday in the elections, but that's where things get dicey, right? Juan Orlando Hernandez, who's been named in a U.S. court trial as a state drug trafficker. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is a huge contradiction where the the Pentagon and the State Department are supporting the same people that the DEA and New York City prosecutors are saying are state drug traffickers, like utterly contradictory. But um, there was no single coup leader, right? It was, again, the oligarchy and the military. Um, but what happened is I knew people who were here and as well as just a lot of Hondurans who were, you know, old enough at the time, like people who are in their 30s now and were participated in mass protests then, people knew it was coming for several weeks, right? There were things to indicate that there was going to be a coup. Um, the real, like the supposed reason why they did the coup was that President Manuel Zelaya said, we're going to have a, um, a constituyente, like a constitutional assembly to rewrite the constitution. They painted that as some Trojan horse for communism being brought to Honduras. But the context you have to remember is that in a lot of these Latin American democracies, which are very young and very weak, um, 
the constitutions were written by the army in the 1980s with the explicit goal of saying that they were democratic, but protecting the army and making the country fundamentally undemocratic. So that's actually one of the things that one of the candidates nowadays who's about to try to be elected, and we'll see if it works, who knows, wants to do, because they said that they carried out the military coup to stop that. There were other reasons they actually did the coup. It was because the guy raised the minimum wage and wanted to work with Venezuela, right? Um, But when they finally did it on June 28th, 2009, the military showed up at the presidential palace, five in the morning, four in the morning, and a bunch of soldiers with M16s basically escorted the president out of the country on a plane. Interestingly, they put him on a plane and they went and refueled at a US military base and then flew him off to Costa Rica. So, and then we have this nightmare for the past 12 years. Right, surely though, these elections, like you just said, this is essentially a narco state, US backed coup. Like, it doesn't give you a lot of confidence that these are going to be legitimate elections, right? No, it doesn't. Um, And neither for a lot of Hondurans. Although, I mean, desperation makes people have hope, right? Uh, Sometimes. But people are pretty cynical about what's going to happen. Can't say what will happen, but um, it's not looking too good. There was already an example in 2017 where a popular... This is why people are, some people say that the country is already a dictatorship and everyone says, you know, narco dictatorship. In 2017, there was an opposition candidate uh, who was set to oust the current president, Juan Orlando Hernandez, the state drug trafficker, who, by the way, is far right, very far right. Um, And he was winning in the elections. And suddenly, uh, late that night of the election day, all of the voting machines had a glitch. And then once the computers came back on nationwide, Juan Orlando Hernandez was winning by a hair. And yeah, so then there was mass protests um, and anywhere from 30 to 80 people were killed in subsequent protests, some getting shot at protests, some by military death squads, right? And Juan Orlando was declared president. So people fear that that's going to happen. What do you think is going to happen? You've been there, you know the kind of lay of the land right now. What do you expect? Um, I don't want to, my intuition is that there's a high possibility that a similar situation will play itself out. Um, I mean, just talking to people being here, but also Hondurans themselves, like, you know, major universities, like professors, people who study this, um, kind of pro-democracy institutions have said, and I recently wrote about this in a piece for foreign policy, that there is a very high chance that that is going to repeat itself. And if it does, you're going to see more migrant caravans leaving the country because with these governments, kind of the narco governments uh, supported by the U.S., it is utter despair. I mean, there's nothing for people here in Honduras, right? Especially if you're poor. Yeah, yeah. Um, So let's talk about these paramilitary units then. Obviously, with a paramilitary, there is, uh, you know, a conflict. What exactly is the point of these paramilitaries? Why are there so many? And, you know, what's their role in the country? Yeah, so the paramilitary groups really um, have to be understood in the context of a certain conflict um, that has grown out of the last decade since the coup, um, in the post-coup context, right? The Honduran government, uh, ever since the late 90s and globalization, one of their main cash cows was agribusiness, right? And in agribusiness, especially palm oil, um, because palm oil, African palm, uh, produces fucking everything, right? It's one of the most lucrative uh, agricultural products in the world, right? So vast, vast swaths of 
Honduras have been turned into palm oil plantations, the vast majority of them run by uh, oligarchic corporations, such as the Dinant Corporation, which, you know, you recognize from the reporting, right? Um, so the paramilitary groups grow out of these conflicts between peasant groups uh, after the coup and the palm oil corporations, right? What happened is that you have, so out of this conflict, in the early 90s, um, the peasant groups, basically, they had cooperative lands that had been given to them in the uh, 70s, the 60s, 70s, and 80s, right? Um, these were just kind of like cooperatively held lands that were given out to the peasants to stop the kind of revolution that you saw taking place in Guatemala, El Salvador, uh, Nicaragua, right? It was a U.S.-backed plan back then. But then when globalization rolls around in the 1990s, the IMF promotes the corporate consolidation of these lands. It's a bit complicated, so I'll leave that aside. And all the peasants lose their land, right? And they're pissed, you know? So they create organizations. They spend the next uh, almost two decades trying to get their land back legally. Uh, but then the military coup happens, and they still hadn't made any progress, right? I mean, Honduras was still corrupt beforehand. And these groups basically said, holy shit, we're never going to get our land back, right? And mm. we're going to be working for dirt poor wages for this palm oil corporation. Uh, so they decided to physically reoccupy their lands. Uh, and in the period after the coup, in a place called the Aguan Valley, uh, kind of the heart of palm oil production in Honduras, um, there was a campaign, a sustained campaign of assassinations that was carried out against these peasant groups um, by the Honduran military and the Honduran police and hired assassins, which were very often tied to one of those two groups, as well as corporate security guards for the Dinant Corporation, which was the main palm oil corporation in Honduras. Um, so out of that context, you have a problem, right? About 150 of them are killed in this campaign of assassinations, which is essentially carried out to put pressure on these groups that physically reoccupied their farms after the coup. Because after the coup, they were like, we can't go through the legal system to try to get our land back. The problem was, was that uh, the Honduran military got in a lot of trouble for this. It was really obvious that they were killing people. Several human rights reports showed that they were engaging basically in tactics of counterinsurgency to kill off the leaders of these movements and get them, get rid of them. At the same time, the Dinant Corporation, uh, whose guards were killing people and whose guards worked hand in glove with the military, um, they actually would be given military uniforms, according to many uh, witnesses who've talked to other investigators and myself. The Dinant Corporation got in trouble as well, and the World Bank, which had been funding them, temporarily suspended aid. So they had to think of a new strategy, right? Um, with uh, it being harder to directly kill uh, these people via the military, via the private security guards, they started creating paramilitary groups, right? It's a bit complex how they created the paramilitary groups because the paramilitary groups oftentimes are infiltrated. And we get into this a little bit in the reporting, right? Um, they basically planted infiltrators inside these social movements, uh, provocateurs, right? And they were almost always former soldiers or former security guards for this palm oil corporation. And it turns out that these provocateurs who would usually uh, rise to leadership positions saying that they would protect these organizations uh, from violence themselves turned out to be organizing, in the words of the peasants, paramilitary death squads, right? They would go find the kids in the community, the teenagers, and be like, with a revolutionary discourse, say, we're going to protect our community, right? 
and they would couple them with known assassins who worked for um, kind of in drug war networks, as well as other former soldiers and private security guards. And these groups are directly supported by the Honduran military. Um, I'm going to limit what I say here, but in one of the largest groups, which we know more about because it's existed longer, called the Grupo de Celio, uh, a special forces commander, Herman Alfaro, was frequently seen with the leader of this group, an ex-special forces officer, Celio Rodriguez, right? And he would come and they would carry out military training of uh, the members of the paramilitary group in this community. But the fact that it was infiltrated meant that they could do two things. They could both kill off the peasant movements, but then from afar, they could say, well, look at the savage, violent peasants. They're just killing each other, right? You know, uh, we stopped killing them because remember in the first era, they got in trouble for directly killing them. But these groups were supported by the army themselves and were killing off people. So it was a form of criminalization. So I know that that's a long explanation, right? But now you have these groups and this is kind of like an emergent strategy. It's not, it's only beginning. Uh, they've killed 50, 60, 70 people, uh, but there's been no definitive counts. And it's kind of the new strategy to create these third party groups that can both A, kill off peasant movements, and then B, from afar, be said to allow people to say, look at how violent they are, the killing people, these savage peasants, you know? So th this is basically a way for the military to kind of carry out some dirty work on the sly, right? Like the paramilitary units, sounds like that's what they're using them for. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, you may uh, probably read about this some, but in Honduras, but also through much of Latin America, uh, but in Honduras after the coup, people talked about the Colombianization of uh, public security, right? This idea that we were going to end up with a situation where in Colombia in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, the army created paramilitary groups. Well, it's complex, but they supported paramilitary groups yeah. and worked with paramilitary groups who would do their dirty work, right? And people talked about it right after the coup in Honduras, um, but then they kind of forgot about it because, you know, people want history to ha happen fast to prove what they say, but history works really slowly, right? But now about, you know, 12 years after the coup, um, it started maybe four or five years ago, very slowly, it's happening. Um, and from what everyone says, this is growing and this is a consistent thing and we can get more into this, right? But this is the Colombianization of uh, security in Honduras, really. Right. Um, and you, you wrote this great article, I was reading it the other day, and it kind of starts with this guy, uh, I think it was named Daniel Garcia. Um, he was threatened. T tell me about that. What's the situation with the, the way that they're kind of threatening was effectively civilians out here? Yeah. So basically these groups, um, you have to understand them, not just in terms of killing, although they've killed quite a few people, right? Mm. Um, they're essentially in kind of a granular on the ground level. They're like these state supported gangs, right? Who are also intimidating people uh, who are doing everything they can basically to get rid of these peasant movements, the peasant cooperatives, right? Um, so that includes simple intimidation as well as killing. Um, so this guy, I spent a lot of time in this community, um, which a peasant cooperative basically reclaimed their, their land from the Dinant African Palm Corporation, right? Um, but then you saw in the last three years, the rise of the Santos Torres paramilitary group, right? Which I've got to be careful about how I say some of this stuff. Um, it's got about 30 guys and it follows the same dynamics that we've discussed. It's supported by the military. Um, 
photos began circulating of the leader who was then later killed, um, Santos Torres with Honduran soldiers in the region earlier this year, right? So you can draw your conclusions from that. But anyways, this summer, um, Santos Torres was killed, right? The leader of this group. And all of the uh, evidence indicates that he was killed by the army. The army was actually killing their own guy to be able to basically criminalize their victims. And then the paramilitary group would go kill them, right? So Santos Torres is killed by an army death squad uh, in late June. You see, I talked to a guy who uh, saw the security footage in this community, right? Um, talks about four guys in military uniforms and the other four in all black and they all had M16s. They go into a church and they murder this guy. Right afterwards, you see the effect of this because then the paramilitary... Just, Jesus Christ. Yeah, right? I mean, it's it, it's pretty violent. Um and there are things that I can't say, but just I'll let you and whoever is listening draw their conclusion. Right, but not to, I, I totally understand that you're out there, but obviously you don't want anyone to come and kind of threaten you, right? That's the kind of issue. Yeah, yeah, um, I've already had that happen. Yeah, I can imagine, yeah, no worries, I understood. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I'm trying to be careful here, right? But anyways, so as soon as this guy is killed, they basically killed him off because they, uh, people referred to it as a campaign of false positives because the... The, really the owners of these groups the, the army and i'll let people decide who else uh finances these groups right um read the article non-state actors very wealthy actors right they killed off this guy and then right afterwards the paramilitary groups creates a kill list of five of the leaders of this small community right and they say we're going to kill all of you as re retaliation for um uh killing Santos Torres, even though it was very clearly the army that killed Santos Torres and potentially other members of the paramilitary group. The first of them, Juan Manuel Moncada, is killed within a week, right? He starts receiving text messages and this like taunting invective, right? I talked about that in the article. Um, they basically, no one knows how they get the numbers of these people, but they're small communities and they get it, right? And they generally tell people they're going to kill them, you know, just to kind of torture them psychologically, right? Mm -hmm. This guy, he uh, he tried to move between one village and another. He tried to uh, go to a large town in the region to get away, but the paramilitary group tracked him, right? And he was assassinated at a bank within a week of the kill list coming out. As you were shown in your article, they're like literally sending them pictures of guns, right? Like on, on WhatsApp, like, hey, like this is what's coming for you sort of thing. Yeah, right. So then this is the, you know, the perfect example. So right after Juan Manuel Moncada got killed and he received these exact same messages, Daniel Garcia um, begins receiving messages of AK-47s, right? And these guys and, you know, shitty Spanish because they're all just uneducated assholes. Um, they're saying, you know, this gun is waiting for you. You know, mm -hmm. you're alive because God is great and powerful, but I don't think you'll have the same luck this week, right? And that same night, a few days after his best friend was killed and Daniel was on the kill list too, his house is surrounded by these guys with bulletproof vests, AK-47s uh, and baklavas, right? Um, and they just sit out there, right? I, I couldn't get this in the article, but they're, um, you know, they like put laser dot sites on his little adobe walled hut, right? Um, they're torturing him. It's psychological torture. Yeah. And basically he's hiding inside, um, wanting to die, right? And finally, Daniel and a man who I will not name because he's not asked me to, but he was also on the list. They fled. And then the other two members of the list fled as well, right? So the goal was achieved. 
they got rid of the leaders of the peasant movement, right? But they mm-hmm. killed one of them. And then the other four, Daniel's on the U.S. border right now, about to cross the desert into Arizona. So, um, yeah, they, they did it, you know? And that's yeah. this kind of fucked up strategy that they have to kill off and then scare off uh, the leaders of these groups. Um, yeah, I mean, th- these are essentially narco-paramilitary groups, right? I mean, you could argue that the Honduran military is a narco-paramilitary group, but yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah, so so then these guys are definitely uh, on that level. Um, how well armed are they? How how much kind of hardware do they have? Is it is it possible that any group you think could could rise up against them or not? I'm guessing no, seeing as they you know it seems like an extension of the military. Um, no, I would argue. I mean, I think honestly, and this is a bigger historical uh, discussion. I think the Honduran military, since the coup, has been having wet dreams of like a guerrilla uprising because that mm. would give them, I mean, A, they could go be Rambo badasses and, you know, finally have a war that they didn't get in the 1980s. Um, but that would also give them the green light to actually get rid of these people straight away and just massacre them. But there's that tradition really doesn't exist in Honduras, right? Um, they they always like to pull these narratives of, you know, these peasant groups are actually, you know, guerrilla groups in disguise. I mean, I've lived and spent weeks in these communities, there's no evidence to suggest that that is true. Um, Mm. So they're not rising up, but in terms of the arms of the groups themselves, they're armed with AK-47s, they're armed with M16s, AR-15s, laser dot sights. Um, I mean, that's that special, right? But they're nice guns. Mm, mm. Um, Bulletproof vests, and oftentimes, and I'll let people draw their conclusions, again, being careful how I say this, they have bulletproof vests that read police and army on them. Uh, and in the quote of this one lady who um, her son eventually fled too, right? He was threatened. Like this whole community is getting killed off, scared off. Um, eight people have officially been killed there, but the number is actually closer to like 15. Another story. Uh, she talks about how when the paramilitary showed up, they, this summer after they killed that leader and then started killing people in the community, they look, they're so well equipped. They look like soldiers. You can't tell the difference, right? And I'll let the people listening uh, infer into what that actually means and where they're getting that gear from, you know? What's the situation then going forward? Like, it, it doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound, unfortunately, like there's any hope for your average, you know, man and woman in Honduras. Is, is it just going to carry on being this kind of narco state where America is just like, yeah, yeah, we'll allow that to happen. Like, obviously, having the backing of such a powerful country doesn't doesn't make it look like anything's going to change. But I don't know. You, you know the area. You're there. You're reporting there. Is there anything positive that you can see um, going forward or, or not? I mean, I think that, you know, obviously, like, on the one hand, you know, as a journalist, I'm not here to try to, like, be an inspirational speaker, right? Like, it's pretty bleak. Um, oh yeah no of course yeah 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 i mean i shouldn't i should rephrase i know that you definitely don't believe that either right (laughs) um yeah yeah that's definitely not the case but um it's pretty bleak right in general with honduras um i mean i've spent a decent amount of time in latin america and honduras i'm not the only one who feels this way is like one of the most despairing countries which is why one out of five people apprehended at the border are hondurans despite it being such a small country Mm. Um, I mean, I think one thing to look at is that in spite of this growing strategy of um, paramilitary groups and specifically paramilitary infiltration, right, 
where they basically create these groups out of the fabric of social movements. This is complicated. We didn't really get into this, but it's it's complex. They basically, they get the infiltrators in the groups, in the movements, right? They start killing people from the inside. People are confused, terrorized or whatever, but then eventually the groups grow to such a size that they separate entirely, right? Mm-hmm. And then that's where they become like their own monsters. Anyways, in spite of that, uh, peasant groups in this part of the country that, is, that are locked in conflict with the Dinant Palm Oil Corporation have continued to retake their land, right? Um, and that's one thing that objectively I think is, you know, commendable, you know, because they, in spite of the hundreds of killings uh, in the last 10 years and the dozens that have occurred recently, um, they're still deciding like, okay, we're going to try to organize uh, and go retake our lands. They find their papers from like the 90s from when these lands were taken from them via coercive means. And they go set up these sprawling um, tent occupations on these farms, these massive plantations, right? And I think that, you know, that just goes to show it's not that you should be like, you know, things are optimistic in Honduras, but people have their lives, right? They're not going to just sit around and despair forever. And they're going to try to collectively fix their problems. And that is something, you know, but the, the problem is, is that the strategy is already being used against those new land occupations at the same time. Um, for example, don't mean to go on too long here, but, uh, I visited one of these land occupations several times this year. It's called Los Laureles. It's hard to say in English. Um, and basically it's just that, like the peasants reoccupy their land. Um, and they have been besieged by Honduran police and Dinant corporate security guards who fly drones around the plantation at all hours of the day, right? And who go together in joint patrols between the police and the corporate guards, like much of the world, right? Um, it was actually funny when we were there, we were getting followed by this drone that, you know, floated above us all this way around a plantation. Um, but anyways, the people have since told me that, you know, they're trying to maintain their land, they're besieged, right? But that now there are people on the inside of their group there who are being seen with the Dinant corporate security guards, right? And who are creating problems, a group of four to five young men, which is always the profile, right? Like some 18 or 19 year olds who, you know, want some money kind of don't really have morals or whatever mm. and they're being seen with Dinant guards and it's the beginning it's already creating problems within that movement and then recently uh five bodies were dumped in the region right um and the, the origin stories of some of the bodies are a bit complex right but it's clear what happened was basically whether it was the paramilitaries which I'm not saying anything or the authorities or just common criminals in Honduras they're the same it was meant to criminalize this group of people, right? Um, that five bodies in rapid succession were dumped around this plantation. Um, so same strategies being played out, you know, um, people are trying to take their land back and improve their lives, but then you've got this complex paramilitary strategy that's growing and being used against them. Right. Um, in terms of just your, your average man and woman on the street, you're, you're around a lot of them, obviously, with your work. What are, what are their kind of views um on the whole situation what are they saying i mean one of the things i think like you know um is that even within honduras a lot of these problems i mean i think this is the whole world over right like you can't expect people to be that aware of their social situation especially if they're poor tired exhausted whatever only in the region of this country uh where these groups emerge do people really realize what's going on and even then it took a while for them to figure out what the fuck was going on because this was such kind of a sinister strategy, right? Um, you know, inside 
the groups grow out from inside the movements themselves. It confuses the hell out of people. Why are people dying? Um, in that part of the country, uh, people are very well aware that there are paramilitary groups. Um, ironically, not everyone realizes that they're supported by the authorities because there's really strong narratives in Honduras. And I think this applies to lots of Latin America. They just say like, oh, the criminality is bad, right? You know, there's just violence and it's there and, you know, go about your day and keep your head down, right? Even though that criminality is supported by the authorities, you know? Um, but I can't really blame someone who's dirt poor and busy all the time and exhausted from not having an astute analysis of this. But long story short, in Honduras, a lot of people actually don't know about these groups. Um, only the people who are like direct victims are really aware of what's going on. Really? Yeah. Um, like in Honduras, for example, when um, Santos Torres was killed, likely by the army, likely as a pretext to then have the paramilitaries killed people, we discussed. Um, in Honduras, a few media outlets, um, I mean, they're so kind of clueless on this. They actually described him as a peasant leader and painted him in a nice light, right? Like, oh, this peasant leader was just killed for such and such reasons. And it was all false. Um, that's also fits in with the narrative, right? That just the peasants are violent and inherently violent, you know, and that's just how life is, you know? And that's what a lot of people think like, oh, out in the countryside, the peasants are killing each other. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how it is. It's, you would think that a lot of people would know, but at this point, it's only like the direct victims who like can see with utter clarity what's going on. Not looking good then. Um, so what, what about in terms of the elections? What are people kind of saying about them? They're coming up, as you said, like in what, like two days. Um, what, what's people's kind of thoughts on them? I imagine it's, it's not particularly positive. No, I mean, it's so, like the elections, um, I wrote about this. I got a piece coming out in like actually 45 minutes or something um, with the LA Times on this. But they capture like a lot of the contradictions of the post-coup era, really. Um, because on the one hand, you have um, Nasri Asfara, who is a far-right candidate connected to Juan Orlando Hernandez. Um, and it's actually really funny because his kind of catchphrase in Honduras is Papia la Orden, which means daddy at your service. Um, but anyways, the guy is just a total scumbag and he had embezzled a million dollars. And he's also connected to this political party that is consists of state drug traffickers, right? Mm. Um, so there's no way that he's not complicit either. And I should say that this political party has been named by U.S. prosecutors as a state drug trafficking organization. So you've got Nasri Asfara, the far-right drug trafficker, and then connected to the current president. And then you have the wife of the guy who was ousted in the military coup 12 years ago. Xiomara Castro, right? Um, the wife of Manuel Zelaya. And she's kind of this progressive populist um, who, you know, I'm not going to get too much into her policies, right? But let's just call her like, you know, vaguely progressive, right? Mm. But people in Honduras are really excited about her um, because she offers a change that you haven't seen in the last 12 years in Honduras. She says that she wants to go through with a uh, uh, constitutional assembly, right? To rewrite the constitution for greater inclusivity, he wants to loosen Honduras's extremely restrictive abortion laws, basically wants to reverse a lot of the post-coup policies that have kind of driven migration out of the country. The problem is, is that the National Party, right, the, the state drug trafficking organization has so many illegal mechanisms, uh, clientelistic mechanisms to remain in power that, A, there's a chance that they'll be able to just slide by with like bought off votes. I talked to a source two days ago who was saying that the National Party was giving out literally, I mean, it's third world shit, right? 
some people will get upset that I said that. Um, but, you know, they were literally giving out stoves and fridges and money to people in the department of Indibuka in exchange for writing down their information and a promise that they would vote for the National Party, right? Just bribing them with, like, basic essentials. Yeah, right? Like, a lack of education and poverty so, means that you can buy people. Mm. Um, and even if they can't buy people, which that, to begin with, is a pretty good strategy, right? Um, the problem is, is that there are several elite military units. This is aside from the paramilitaries created in the land conflicts. Several elite military units were created by Juan Orlando Hernandez. He basically stewarded their creation and they're full of hardcore, lo hardcore loyalists to the president, right? So if they, let's say they tried to commit a fraud in the election um, or like the election is actually close and they might lose, there's a high chance that those military forces will be deployed um, under some other pretext, of course, like maintaining security, and that they will repress any mass protest. And they don't use rubber bullets in Honduras. They mm. use live ammo, right? That's why so many people die in the protests here. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's kind of what's at stake tomorrow. Um, we'll see how it goes. On the one hand, you could maybe have the end of an era, the post-coup era. Not all the problems will be fixed, but it will be a new era. And the other, it's going to like go straight to military dictatorship. Isn't there a worry that even if, you know, the other candidate that the military don't like gets in, that they're just going to do another coup? Like, surely, you know, they hold all the power. It's in every interest for them to hold the power. And also, they've been given the green light by, you know, the most powerful country on earth, America. Surely they'll just, you know, if someone that isn't agreeable to them gets in, they'll just go, okay, coup number two or whatever. Like, won't that just happen? I think that's a possibility. Um, the one thing is that I think that there is a certain heightened scrutiny from the U.S. right now. And I okay. have to clarify what the scrutiny is because, you know, it's not like the U.S. has suddenly become this benevolent, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. watchman over Honduras, right? But ever since um, basically the president, the revelations that the state is the total narco state came when the, the brother of the current president was arrested in Miami in 2018, right? And it turns out that he was arrested on weapons and drug trafficking charges. And it turns out he was using the Honduran military and police, who, by the way, are supported heavily by the U.S., to traffic drugs in the U.S., right? Um, and ever since then, basically, the Honduran government has become this awkward glitch in the facade of the drug war, right? Where it's like these same forces charged with fighting drugs are themselves trafficking drugs while also killing people. And it's kind of an embarrassment for the U.S. at this point, um, because it's not that they suddenly are benevolent towards <laughs> Latin America, right? But they're kind of like, oh, my God, what do we do with this guy? Um, because, you know, there's heightened scrutiny, right? I mean, there's like far more media attention than there was five years ago. Not that it's that much to begin with. So I think it's less likely that they will go with a coup right afterwards because they don't want to have their USA cut off. And the U.S., I think, would consider... Uh pulling back on the aid simply because they don't want to have such an embarrassing ally being drawing attention to just generally how fucked up U S policy is in Central America, which, you know, Kamala Harris and company say that they're fighting root causes, quote unquote, it's total bullshit. I mean, it's yeah, more of the cool. same. Yeah. But like, they don't want it to look bad and it would be a really bad look if a narco state they support did a second coup to stay in power um, or a second coup to come back to power. So possibility, but I think that they might try to find more subtle ways to stay in power. I do agree, though, that the military and kind of the revanchist oligarchic sectors in Honduras 
will try to somehow fight back against uh, Castro, Samara Castro, if she becomes president, um, no doubt. Right, like I can just see, it, even if, okay, maybe they don't do another coup, but I can just imagine a lot of that, the military will probably just become the paramilitary. You know what I'm saying? It does seem ripe for that, from what I've heard anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think this is something that happens also in a lot of Latin America in general. Um, mm -hmm. Like, I mean, Mexico is super complicated, right? But, you know, a lot of these countries that like have very powerful military forces but aren't technically at war is that the military is essentially this massive, well-equipped gang, right? With uniforms, you know? Like ever since the 80s, they've been involved in corruption and drug trafficking, uh, weapons smuggling, right? Um, and they are like almost an oligarchic class unto themselves, right? And they don't like the idea that they're not going to have power, even though like, why the fuck does Honduras need a military, right? It's like the size of Florida, you know, and they're not fighting any official war, um, aside from killing their own people when they need to, you know? Um, so I think that, yeah, that's kind of a very real fear is that like this group, which is extremely well-equipped, supported by the United States and has been trained by U.S. troops frequently, um, is just going to find a way to uh, somehow remain in power or they're going to force, if Castro wins, right, they're going to force her to concede to their presence and to be like, you're not fucking with us or else we'll get rid of you. Mm. And then that creates all sorts of problems, too, you know. Yeah, it's not looking like anything's going to go very smoothly. Um, no. <clears throat> is, is there anything else you want to mention here, mate, before we kind of uh, move on from this? Yeah, um, I mean, I think it's kind of two things connected in one, right? Um, a lot of media coverage, but especially like around the early 2010s, right? Like after the coup in Honduras, there was kind of this tendency, especially for people who would like show up in Honduras for three days and then never come back, Um to paint the violence in the country as being driven mostly by gangs, right? With the subtext being that, you know, the violence in the country is being driven by like these savage poor people, you know? Um, look at the criminality. The criminality is out of control, right? But I think what you can see with the rise of these paramilitary groups, with the mass extrajudicial killings, with the repression carried out by the Honduran military um, and the Honduran police, and the fact that those same groups are themselves trafficking drugs shows that it's state violence. Mm. It's not this criminal wave, you know, and that we need to strengthen the state so that they can fight the evil criminals, the evil gangsters. No, it is the state itself being supported directly by the United States that is very often driving migrants out of Honduras in such colossal numbers. Yeah, man, definitely. It's a very sad situation. Um, all right, mate. Um, where, where can people find your work if they want to and, and follow you and, uh, you know, see your reporting from Honduras? Yeah, definitely. Um, I had a website, uh, it went down recently, but most of my work is accessible via my Twitter, um, jolson321, J-O-L-S-O-N-321. Uh, um, and yeah, so I'm writing for The Intercepts, Foreign Policy, The Nation. You can go find those articles there. Um but yeah, so uh, feel free to go re read some of those reports, right? And there's some other uh, people who speak Spanish can read the reports from Contra Corrientes. Um, there's some other great journalists who do some good work down here as well. All right, mate. Appreciate it. Stay safe out there, man. All right. Thanks, man. Cheers, mate. That was Jared Olsen speaking about the narco paramilitaries of Honduras and the widespread corruption and problems that are in that country, uh, in a large part thanks to the US-backed military coup. 
Um, obviously, we recorded this before the election, but you'll be hearing this after the election. So just so you know, the result is that the opposition that Jared was talking about, uh, she won. So there you go. There's the election results. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popular front. That is the main way we make money. We have been censored off of YouTube. We're not allowed to advertise there. Despite some of our documentaries having more than two and a half million views, we make no money from that. We're not allowed to promote our stuff on Instagram either. We can't make any money that way. So the way we make money because we refuse corporate investment is on the Patreon. Patreon.com slash popular front. There's loads of extras there five pounds a month ten pounds a month whatever you get access to the community discord uh monthly bonus episodes that are only on the patreon there's all sorts there check it out patreon.com slash popular front or if you want to support us in another way via crypto or whatever go to popularfront.co slash support you will see all of the details there this episode was sponsored by oracle coffee shop in Portland, Oregon, USA. They're an independent coffee shop, uh, coffee business, selling only fair trade products. See them at 3875 Southwest Bond Avenue, 97239. The episode was also sponsored by our friends at Grind Core House. That's a pair of independent coffee shops in Philadelphia, USA, one in South, one in West. Find them on socials at Grind Core House. The episode was also sponsored by Propagandopolis, an outlet selling and writing about historical conflict propaganda from around the world. You can buy prints at propagandopolis.com. Use promo code popularfront10 for 10% off. If you want to advertise with us and you're ethical, you're independent, um, let us know. You can email me at hanrahan at pm.me. So H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N at pm.me. We have over uh, 3 million unique downloads. We get a lot, a lot of listeners. So if you're interested and you think that will match up, drop me a line. If you want to follow us on social media, uh, watch our documentaries, youtube.com slash popularfront, Instagram at popular.front, Twitter at popularfront underscore. Um, just check our website out at popularfront.co. Remember as well to follow our backup account on the Instagram because we're threatened with being deleted every single week, basically because we show the news through an unfiltered um, way and we believe that it's, it's important to show the world the, the real aspects of war and conflict as it is. So follow the backup at popularfront underscore. Uh, music in this episode, the intro was by Home and the outro was by Sam Black. Check Sam's music out at samblackpf.com. Sam is a massive part of Popular Front. Without him, we wouldn't be able to do this, so definitely check his music out, share it, everything like that, samblackpf.com. Thank you very much to the higher tier patrons. Without you, this would not be possible. I mean it. Um, thanks for staying with us all of this time. Really do appreciate it. There's big things coming next year. Um, thank you to RA, Champagne Anarchist, Thwat, Elise Middlefart, Jess, Lewis or Louis, uh, David McManus, Joaquin Williamson Holt, Yudoye Travis. Check him out, he's a comedian. I was looking on his uh, Instagram the other day, he's very funny. Check him out, Yudoye Travis. Uh, thank you to Tom Petrie, James Leons, Kate, Lisa Milgram. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry, I'm dying. I'm really ill, apologies. Um, Bradley Davies, Brendan Crave. Pete Hesher, uh, X, A. Nicole, 
Travis Lieberman, Cherry, Ben Marshall, Dallas Dunn, LD50 Seattle, <coughs> excuse me, MJ, K Glitter Vulcan, Meredith Waters, Bethany Swoveland, Adam H, Karante, Bjorn Kirsten, Diamondstein, Michael O'Connor, Zach Picard, Todd Cravens, Nicholas Butter, Ron Swanson, JD, Jav, Ian Froese, James Cully, Tynan Daly, Ethan, Fitz Madrid, Ed Coulthard, Mike Barone, Ben, Liam Williams, Chris Cusimano, Degenerate Zero Alpha, Giorgio Arani, uh, DR, Trey Nance, Amy R, Rubicon, Frank Austin, Amelia Me, Nawaiz, Nate Van Dor, Christina Rivetti, Freya Northman, Ali Hunter, Andrew Hurley, Vida Provost, Brian McLaughlin, Tom Lochrin, Young Wasabi, <coughs> sorry, Tony Bin, Adam Bergsnyder, JL, Stephen Davila, Anthony Kabarak, Dan Dunham, Fletcher, Dinah Govanek, Lawrence Abrahams, uh, Peter McCormick from What Bitcoin Did, Axel Iverson, Christopher Martin at Shady Project, Ryan Sandercock and Moritz Zumbul. Thank you all so much. Really, really appreciate it. Without you lot, this would not be moving as fast as it is. Trust me, next year we're doing a lot. It's going to be really good. Thanks. <laughs>